Please have that passage open in front of you in 1 John 4, and uh, in particular verse 11. And really we've been asking the question, what does real love look like? And we saw that last time. And then following on, we're asking the question this morning, how should we love if we are the Lord's people? So if we are true believers this morning, how should we love? What should that look like in the way that we are with one another in the life of the local church? And really the main point that I want you to realize and consider this morning is this, that the love that God has shown in sending Jesus should be reflected in the love shown by the believer to those around him. And as we saw last time, John is impressing upon the believer just how important love is in the Christian life. It is a vital thing. And he does this in this passage by explaining love firstly in terms of God, in terms of the Trinity, and we looked at that last time. From eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed the fullness of interpersonal relationships. They've always gloried in that infinite closeness that they share. And it is a very stunning thing and a high thing. And so we considered how we are most like God when we love others as shown in our loving relationship towards the Lord and then to those around us. And so this perfect love is demonstrated, is manifest in the very character of God. John says a number of times that love is from God. God is life. God is light, but he is also love. He is love. It is his essence. And so if a believer has life, walks in the light of righteousness and truth, they will also have and show his love. It is a vital component of our knowing the Lord. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. They have been made new. They have been given a a new nature, partakers of the divine nature. And showing this, they will reflect that love, the love of God to others. And this love is not an earthly love. It is a supernatural love. And as we saw in 1 Peter last Lord's Day evening, we have been granted, if we are born again, if we have been granted that new life, the capacity to love like this. It is a love that is otherworldly. And so it is a love that is given, and the capacity to love like that is given to the one who is a true Christian, who knows God, who believes in Jesus. And then we saw that real love is shown most wonderfully and gloriously in the coming of Jesus. The overwhelming emphasis of the Bible is that the love of God is to be seen finally and known truly when we gaze upon the glory and the wonder of what God has done for us and in us through the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are his. And we can only begin to to fathom, to understand, to appreciate the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is perfect love made known, manifested, that God sent his only son into this sinful, broken, ruined world to the cruel shame and agony of the cross, the sinless one, to be made sin for his people, that we might be rescued and delivered. That is what real love looks like. There is no love like that. But then John says, and he takes the argument on, he says, so this love is found, it is God's essence, it is his character. 
It is then demonstrated in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so the outworking of this is also the fact that God's love is displayed in his people. And so God is love, the love of God most gloriously displayed at the cross. But then John says that love is displayed in the ongoing work of the Lord in and through those who are his people, those who know him. Verse 11 to 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And so John makes this now incredibly practical. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John has taken us to the heights of those earlier verses, the enormity, the vastness, the wonder of the love of God in his character and the sending of his son Jesus. But then these next verses, we might think, are a bit of an anticlimax. Because from the amazing magnificence of the love of God, then to be brought down again to the very practical appeal for believers like you and me to love one another, you know, we might think, well, it's a bit of a come down. But in one sense, right there is a real test of our spiritual understanding and where we are with the Lord. You say, well, why does a verse like that test us so much? Well, the verses just before, the one we're looking at this morning, have brought some massive Bible truths and doctrine. The incarnation, the, the coming of Jesus, the Trinity, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, man the sinner, many, many weighty truths. And we should be taken up with them and delight in them. But John says that the true believer, the one who is going on with the Lord, the truth and these great truths will always impact then the life. They will always show themselves in a changed life. Doctrine should always lead to transformation. And so it's never just a, an academic thing to try and get some theology John brings us these great truths so that they, they move us and grip us and stir us and challenge us and by the grace of God, change us. They instruct us and transform us so that we know what it is to know God and to live to his glory and to show the evidence of God's work in our lives. Friends, the gospel is not just truth to affirm or to agree with. It is absolute truth, but it is also the power of God unto salvation. The power of God to save, to deliver, to change, to transform, to grant you life in Christ. And so to understand the truth, to believe the truth, is to be gripped by it. And for your life to be changed through the intervention of the Spirit of God. I was thinking, remember, maybe some of you will know, and remember that occasion, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are exposed there to something truly glorious, something wonderful. The beauty and splendor of Christ, the, the veil lifted as it were, and then also present on that occasion, you have Moses and Elijah, the voice of God, and it's just a staggering thing. And they are just taken up with it. They are lost in the amazement of it all. And Peter, as usual, he says, well, let's make three tabernacles. One for the Lord, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, let's just stay here. 
Let's just, let's just soak this, this up. It is so glorious. Let's just stay here. And you know, you can understand Peter's eagerness to do that, but the Lord says no. Why? Because there's work to be done. And even at that moment, they would descend to be confronted with a man bringing his disturbed and helpless and troubled son. And very often in Scripture, we are given to gaze on these glorious things. We are given to, to gaze on them for their veil to be lifted, for, for that inspiration to lead on, but to be stirred then in the work that God has given us to do while he pleases for us to be here. And so we have to dwell on this great love, but it's not just a, a feeling. This New Testament love shows and, and manifests itself in the way that we are in our actions. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. They are great truths, but they should impart the life. And they should be shown in the way that we are with others. And God is glorified in that. And also, please notice how John puts this. He speaks of the way the believers should know and experience this love and their lives will be the overflow of that. And that's true for all believers. He makes that very clear. This is not an optional extra for the Lord's people. It's not something additional that might be received later on. It is the ongoing indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And as we've seen, the capacity for that comes at conversion. The outworking of divine truth in a life by the power of the Spirit granted at conversion. And so if we say that we believe these great truths, that they have penetrated our hearts and minds, then we should live. We must live in a manner that reflects that. And so the Lord, dear friends, for those of us who are in the fellowship here, has placed us here. And having saved us, he continues with us. He has a, a plan for us. He has service for us. And he desires that our joy may be full. And as John has said, if we want our joy to be full, then we have to live in that manner that pleases God, is a blessing to others, and is the outworking of these divine truths. So you say, well, okay, what does that look like? What does that look like in practice? Well, if we're believers this morning, we have been brought by God's grace to know the Lord, but we still live in this world. We've been called from darkness to light. We have been set in this fellowship by the good hand of God. And now here, and also for those of you who are uh, part of other churches and serving there, you know, we've got to be honest and say that there are those believers that we struggle with at times. And maybe our first reaction is not to like them. It's our instinct. It's nothing new. It's the same in the early church. You can see that very often when you read through the New Testament. And that's why John makes this powerful appeal. He, he spends time on the glories of the love of God and the gospel to lead then into this further instruction and direction about loving the brethren. So what do we do when we come across those people who irritate us or who are a problem to us, maybe even make things difficult for us? Well, John says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And you say, well, how? Well, I remind myself of the truth of God's word. 
And before I act in a manner that is unkind and unloving and displeasing to the truth, uh, to the Lord, I remind myself of the fact, of the great truth, the objective truths of the love of God that we've just been speaking of. The life which the New Testament speaks about underlines the the inexpressible glories of God, the, the salvation that he gives and shows the impact of that in our lives. And it's not just about feelings. Whether I feel like loving other people, if we wait until we feel like it, well, then I think we'd be waiting for a long time. And John says, if God has loved us like this, we ought to love. And how are we to do it? If God so loved us. And so when I feel irritated, maybe antagonistic, I should look at myself, and if we're honest, I know I do it, we're really good at seeing the difficulties in others. But we never really look at ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that recently. People are so eager and quick to point out the faults of others, never to examine their own hearts. But then if God so loved me, even me in all my sin. You know, sometimes we're faced with a situation that we feel is unfair. Maybe we feel we're not being treated right and the other person is wrong and if only they could change, if only they could get their act together, then it would all be better. But John says, and the gospel says, remember who you are. You see, the gospel faces us with ourselves, our sinful, fallen nature. We're brought back to the reality that each of us is ruined by sin, depravity. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And that even as believers, we have that that battle with the flesh, those old ways still present. The flesh rises and we have to kill that, mortify it. You know, it's been said so many times, hasn't it? You know, what is at the center of sin? What letter is at the center of sin? Well, it's, it's I. It's all about me, self. That's what it's all about. And our fallen nature is about exalting self and forwarding self and loving self. As one explains, when we're honest with ourselves and examine ourselves, I think we'll find that most of our troubles and difficulties arise from these causes. Self-centeredness, self-assertion, self-conceit, self-indulgence, self-pleasing, self-seeking, self-pity, self-sensitiveness, self-defense, self-sufficiency, self-consciousness, self-righteousness, self-glory, so we could go on. You know, I think that's unlikely that anyone would deny that this was a true description of us as we really are. We try and convince ourselves and others otherwise, but ultimately, each and every one of us is affected by the fall and sin. That is what it has made us. You know, you think on those elements, self-centeredness, focused on myself, looking at myself, regarding myself, my needs. Self-assertion, it's about asserting myself. I've got wants and I've got desires and I'm going to do anything I can to get them. Self-conceit, I'm always ready to defend myself and I'm quick to condemn others when I'm guilty of the same. Self-indulgent, well, I I indulge myself. I turn a blind eye to myself. I'm critical of others, but it doesn't matter if I act like that. Self-pleasing, think of myself. I do those things that are uh, pleasing to me. How will this benefit me? What do I get out of this? Self-pity, 
Why should I be treated like this by others? I'm not in the wrong. I've, I've not done anything. I'm, I'm having a tough time. People are so inconsiderate, self-sensitive. How easily wounded I am, paranoid, reading to find problems where there may not be any. Self-defense, I'm so eager to justify and defend myself no matter what. Self-sufficiency, self-consciousness. You could go on. Do you know, Paul knew it. And he cried out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? How can I come away from self? How can I come away from that? This wretched fallen reality, the cry of Paul, the cry of every individual has known the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's why verses 9 to 10 are so significant because they bring us to this point. They expose us as we are. The gospel takes us to the end of ourselves, shows us who we are as God sees us, but then lavishes divine grace upon us in spite of our sin. And the true believer, the born-again believer, is humbled and marvels at the great and glorious love of God. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. That He loved us even with all our sin. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. It is beyond words that this great and glorious God should have set His love upon me should love me with everlasting love. But that's the love of God. The steadfast love of God never changes. But you see, when you come to realize that, when you experience that, when God works to bring you to know that and to believe it, do you see what happens? Pride is killed. Pride is removed. Because when I see myself as I really am, I'm not as hit by insults because it's not bad enough. Whatever the world says, when I, when I know myself as God knows me, the world doesn't know me like that. I'm actually worse than they think. And seeing ourselves in the light of the gospel changes our entire perspective. But we are brought in conviction, but God raises us and lavishes his love upon us. And that's what John wants us to grasp. If God so loved us, he starts with the love that God has shown to us, wretched sinners. And so before you rise up in arms to defend yourself against someone you think has been offensive or to push your agenda or to demand your way, look at yourself, see yourself, and you'll find you'll measure your words so much more. And, you know, even as John deals with this powerful insight, he's not finished there. We start with ourselves, but we have to continue on we see ourselves as we really are and how God's incredible love is bestowed upon us despite our sin, that we are precious to him despite all our sin. But that leads on to the practical outworking. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. He takes us from seeing ourselves to looking at those around us. But you look around not with the eye of superiority, but in a totally different manner altogether. To be above is to look down, to be superior. But to be abased is to look up. The perspective is totally different. You see, and that's what God does in our lives. When God is at work in us, when his love has been poured out in our lives, when we cast ourselves on the truth of the gospel, we begin to love people beyond their actions. 
Our major issue with others is that we react to what they do and to their words. We deal with what they do. We fail to see them. We fail to see our brothers and sisters as blood-bought people. And not only that, but when the power of the gospel turns our lives around, it also means that I see others as they really are, that they are those who are sinners. And so we have to see people in that guise as well. And it's not easy. But our prayer should be for God to make us the people that he wants us to be. And actually, the way that we love one another more is to ourselves be closer to the God who loves us and who has saved us. You know, there's a vast difference between attitudes resulting from divine love poured out in a life and the attitude of the world. And you say, well, why should I look beyond? Well, that's because well, that's what God has done for us in his love for us. Did not God look upon us from the glory and splendor of heaven? Did he not see us in all our sin, even before the foundation of the world? Our rebellion, our enmity, our actions that fly in his face, that are an offense to his perfect nature. How could such a holy God love me? How could he love you? God sees beyond. He loves the person in spite of their sin. And he draws that distinction. He has mercy, he has pity. And he provides a way in which their sin can be dealt with. And he says, there is a soul I want to save. And when we're made alive and given that new disposition towards God, we are enabled to love in a way like never before. This love of God which has been poured out in our hearts, which is active in us by grace, enables us to view others in a different way, even those who are offensive to us, and to love them. And in this realm of brotherly love, it's so important that brothers and sisters in the Lord display this love to each other and then beyond. Certainly in the relationships between the people of God, seeing ourselves, the other person, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the love of God, the cross of Christ, we should view each other as blood-bought joint sharers in salvation. And you know, when we're in a local body of the Lord's people, that should be growing all the time. It should be evident all the time. We are sinners saved by grace, brought together, placed on the road with that same hope, heading in that same direction, looking forward with eagerness to the coming glory. And it's a marvelous thing to be brought to walk together as a family of the Lord's people. And so rather than viewing each other with suspicion, desiring to cause each other difficulty, we should see each other as sinners, but who by grace have been drawn together into this amazing spiritual family, saved through the great salvation that God has given to us through his Son. Pilgrims together. This world is not our home. And together we are headed to eternity in the presence of our Saviour. And we will be there together. How can we despise another's salvation? We cannot. We are fellow pilgrims bought with the blood of Christ, joint heirs with Christ, children of God. And so, friends, do you see the seriousness of unity? Do you know, I've been taken aback and dismayed at the readiness of those who claim to be the Lord's people to destroy unity amongst the Lord's people. 
Prayerfulness for unity is essential. We are to strive for unity. And one who seeks to divide the brethren is in great error. And that's why God views it with such displeasure. We ought to love one another. As I finish, there's one example that's been used much with these verses and for good reason. And when we grasp this truth, we realize the debt of love that we owe God, a debt that we can never repay. And we realize how we must be the same with others. We looked at it recently in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus speaks of a king who took a reckoning of his servants. And he found that one of those servants owed him a, a great sum, 10,000 talents. And the man was unable to pay the debt. So the king commanded that he should be placed into prison with his family. But the servant went on his knees and begged the Lord to have mercy on him. And he asked for time. And the Lord had mercy and forgave him everything. And the man was free. But then this man went out, found one who owed him a, a very minor amount. And he demanded the payment instantly. And the poor man replied, please give me some time and you'll be paid. Yet the man who had received pardon had no mercy. He demanded payment and when it was not forthcoming, threw him into prison. Well, the king hears. And the king is furious. And condemns the servant to prison and torture until the debt was paid. And what did the Lord powerfully conclude that narrative with? So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The Lord is very clear. Whenever we pray in the manner of the Lord's prayer, do we not pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? I wonder, do we really appreciate what we are saying there? And certainly in the light of the parable, the first servant owed something that today would be in the millions and yet the king was merciful, and yet this wicked servant owed a far lesser amount, refused to forgive. Some have worked out that the debt was 400,000 times more than the debt of the one that he refused to forgive. But you see, when the sinner recognizes their sin, repents and cries out to God, and falls before the God alone that can forgive sin, hopeless and helpless, God acts to grant forgiveness on the basis of the saving work of Jesus Christ, who secured the salvation of his people, the payment of their debt at the cross. And surely it makes us marvel all the more at what Christ accomplished at Calvary, that we have been forgiven in such a manner as one explains, every sin we commit is deposited in the treasury of wrath that constitutes our debt to God unless we are recipients of the mercy of Christ. On the cross, all of that debt was paid by our Saviour. And if you're a believer this morning in Christ, you have received extravagant grace. The debt that we owed was unpayable. Our debt was infinitely deep. Our sin before an infinitely holy God. But Christ, our substitute, has paid it. Out of sheer compassion, the Father sent his Son to endure the wrath that sinners like us deserve. So that all who trust in him could be forgiven, freed from the penalty of sin. Free not only as a servant, but as sons and daughters. And then the challenge comes. If God has forgiven you so greatly, surely you should be eager to forgive others. And if you're not, then it is a terrible thing to be a recipient of immeasurable forgiveness and yet to be unwilling to forgive others. 
If we have been forgiven much, we should be ready to forgive others. Our debt to God is infinite. If he forgives me, how can I possibly refuse to forgive someone else for so much less? And the Lord is saying that men and women who know that, who know that they in themselves have been loved much, have been forgiven much, must love much, and must forgive much. And in fact, they cannot help themselves. If we know we are debtors to mercy alone, lost in the wonder of God's love for us, we cannot help but love others, forgive others, forgiveness on those right terms. The love of God has so overwhelmed us, so broken us, that we feel a compulsion. God has done so much for us that this must then reflect itself in our attitude towards others. It's a really simple message. Friends, as I said at the beginning, the love of God is active, it is continuing. God did not only look upon us in love, he acted, he intervened. He loved enough to send his son, the Lord Jesus. He didn't just consider, he acted love in action. God did something as an expression of his love, and through his love we are saved, and so we ought also to love one another. My love must show itself in action, even when it costs, to uphold my brother, to look beyond his son, to pray for him, to persevere with him, to stand with him. God does that for me when I act in ways that are offensive to him when I sin. He spared not his son. That is love. His love at work in me and through me. And if it really is, then we will do likewise. It's the divine purpose for us. And consequently, when we love like that, we are being transformed to be more like the Lord Jesus. And there is a day when that will be perfected. And what a day it will be when we see him. So dear brother and dear sister, we have to see ourselves. We have to see each other in the light of the gospel. And in the light of the love of God, totally undeserving of this love. And so we love each other, realizing that we are to esteem each other better than ourselves and understanding that we all continue to battle with sin. And so rather than cause each other to stumble, we are to pray, we are to encourage, we are to uphold, we are to bless each other, to build one another up so that together we might experience the power of this love at work in our relationship, firstly with the Lord, but then with each other. And we do it because we go to the same destination. We are headed to Emmanuel's land, to the glory that is there, where the curse and toils of this world will be no more. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more dispute, no more mistrust, nothing to mar the perfection and the glory of this incredible salvation and inheritance that we have been given by grace. And so may it be that our conviction of the truth shows itself in the beauty of action so that the Lord is glorified in us and in our coming together and that we reflect this amazing love which he has demonstrated and which he has lavished upon us. Friends, do you know the love of God? You can only know it if you trust Jesus. And if you know that love of God in your life, that transforming power, then you should love others. You should love the brethren. May it be so, and may it be evident here.
Amen.